welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, episode number 93 for Wednesday, September 18th, 2019. I'm your host, Ken Gagney. I had a fantastic time at PAX East several months ago, and I was fortunate enough to make friendships that have lasted to this day. And when in the past month some difficult situations arose in the video game scene, one of these friends was able to come forward and give me some great advice. And I'm happy to have her on the show today, Dr. Arit Lazarus, clinical psychologist. Hello, Arit. Hi, so happy to be here. So happy to have you here. Is it okay that we're on a first name basis or should I be calling you Dr. Lazarus? I think Arit is fine. You can also call me Dr. L. Some of my patients call me Dr. L, which is sort of a running joke because L in Hebrew, which is one of my languages that I speak, means God. So Dr. God also I get addressed <laughs> as, but a will work just fine. So you don't have any sort of ego issues, I'm aware No, not of. at all. I, I can clearly see that. <laughs> Wonderful. So you and I met in the Diversity Lounge, the founder of which has also been on this podcast. And I was just hanging out. I thought, if I'm going to make new friends, this is the place I'm going to meet them. And you and your husband just wandered up and started chatting. And we've been friends ever since. It's been amazing. I... <laughs> <laughs> I think we ended up following you around for many hours at PAX, which is not something we normally do. <laughs> well, I'm glad to have a fan. Thanks. <laughs> and you were wearing, was it a bandolier you had made of every single PAX badge? Because you've been to every PAX East. I did not go to the first one, but I've been to every PAX in the Boston Convention Center. And I did a, I was uh, Dr. Queen PAX. I had a crown and a sash with all of my old PAX badges, and the ones from this past year will be turned into a scepter, I think, for next year's. That is amazing. What is it that draws you to PAX? Is it the board games, the video games, the VR? What What is it? It's the tabletop games and then the energy of all the people being in one place, super, super excited, super nice to each other, ready to play together. It's, I, it's such a high for days and days. So you don't go for the video games? At PAX? Not as much. Like I've entered a couple of tournaments. I did a Peggle tournament my first year and a um, Plants versus Zombies one year. Um, but I, I've over the years, I've spent more time on tabletops and less time with the actual video games. Now, when you mention having 70,000 people in one place at the same time is energizing for you, that sounds like what I would describe as an extrovert. Yes, that would be correct. <laughs> I, <laughs> I find it either energizing or super relaxing. Like, I find I'll be super energized and then I'll be super hungry and exhausted. And then I'll just want to sit and just listen to thousands of people be happy. It's such a great feeling. Now, some people go into the diversity lounge or to the AFK room because they need some downtime from all that energy. So what drew you to the diversity lounge? Two reasons. One is my own experiences having physical disabilities and also being a Sephardic Jewish woman and wanting to see what non-dominant spaces would be like. And then the other one is for my patients. I have my own private practice and um, I try to use playfulness in my work a lot. And I work with a lot of uh, queer people and it's always great to have just 
mental health resources, gaming resources, fun resources, you know, people looking into conferences in other cities, that sort of thing. So I wanted to get a bunch of loot for my patients. You mentioned your patients and the sort of resources that you can provide to them. So often when you and I are hanging out and we're just chatting about everything under the sun and just playing board games like we recently did at the Adventure Pub, I almost forget you're a psychologist because your identity as a nerd seems so <laughs> foremost and primary, but you are a psychologist. So tell me, tell me, how did you come to that role? So I think when I was a little kid, um, everyone thought I should be a lawyer because I love to argue. But really what it is, is I like to advocate for people. I've always been interested in emotions and reading people and dynamics and that sort of thing. And when I got to college, I just took classes I liked. And I studied diplomatic history, humanistic philosophy. I had two majors and psych was a minor. It was like a class or two from a triple major. And I just like kept taking classes I liked. And there were two big things for me in college that got me into psychology. So one, this is not a normal way that people get into psychology. I studied Hitler, Stalin, and Mao. Oh. And I thought, what would have happened if these people had had therapists before they became <laughs> dictators? Would they perhaps have not needed to murder gazillions of people? Would they have had, you know, how would they have done things differently? You know, the more that I studied nationalism and war, the more that I wanted to help people change on an individual um, internal level. And the other big piece for me was, um, you know, my nerdiness has been, I think when you and I were kids, the word nerd had a very negative connotation. I agree. And really what it meant was being super, super, super enthusiastic about something. It's really what it meant, you know, and about something that wasn't popular at that time. Right. And then I think society sort of changed about how they see nerd, you know, like I, sometimes I'll tell my patients that coolness is sort of the, the perception that you don't care. And nerdiness is this act of intense enthusiasm. And so I think in the past they've been seen as opposed I never did any impressions management. It wasn't even in my mind that you, that I would pretend I'm really strict about only saying things that I believe are true. And when I got to call, and this meant that in high school, I often felt, um, you know, unpopular and felt isolated and things like that. And then when I got to college, I was sort of remarking on how confident everyone was and wondering how they got there. And a friend said, Arit, they're just pretending. <laughs> And I was like, <laughs> what? What do you mean? And he's like, they're just putting on an act. And my mind was completely blown. Wow. And I realized, oh, that just means they're insecure. That just means when they're acting arrogant, they're scared. And so people felt not scary after that. And I realized that they needed help to like themselves more. So... Those were the sort of like the two big things that led me to actually decide, okay, I'm going to be a psychologist. People need to like themselves more and like in a very deep and true way. And you chose to become a psychologist instead of a psychiatrist. What's the difference between those two? So a psychiatrist is a physician, someone who has an MD, a medical degree, and they go through medical school. And then when it comes time to specialize, like a neurologist or a surgeon or other types of specialties, they do a psych psychiatry specialty residency and other um other levels of like fellowships and things like that 
there's a big variety among psychiatrists about how much clinical training they actually have. Some psychiatrists do what we call medication management, which is they're basically there to get a sense of your symptoms and then give you medicine, whereas others do talk therapy and some do both. Psychologists are not physicians at all. So my degree is a PsyD. So I'm going to add an extra distinction here, if that's okay. Psychologists can be PhDs or PsyDs. PhDs are doctorate of psychology. PsyD is doctorate of clinical psychology. So a psychologist is a more clinical degree, and my degree is more clinical even than that and less research-based. I prefer to hear about the results of other people's research than to create it myself. But if I were seeing you because I had uh, some sort of a, let's say, bipolar disorder or depression or a chemical imbalance, would you be able to prescribe something for me? No, I don't do any prescriptions. So I would be the person that you talk through everything with. So we would, you know, get a sense of who you are as a whole person and then how these disorders play in your life, what your goals are, how you implement them, how you can predict trigger cycles. You know, it's insight oriented, it's tools, mindfulness. There's a lot we can do. But the actual medication aspects of it, like for, um, you know, bipolar disorder, if it's like um, lithium or limbicnol or something like that, then you're going to go to an MD. And some people use their primary care physicians and other people use psychiatrists or psychiatric nurses. And they meet with them less frequently because it's just for a medication check. Got it. Okay. Thank you. So your... Was it a dissertation that you had to complete to become a psychologist? So because I was doing a PsyD and not a PhD, it was a doctoral project, so not fully the level of a dissertation. But I, so like I, only, I did a study with a hundred subjects about playfulness, which I, I'm guessing is where you're going to ask me next. That's right. That's what I'm very curious about, which is, of course, PAX East is where I go to play video games. You have played video games there. Video games are a huge, not only industry, but also pastime for so many of us. We sit down at the end of a long day and we play video games for stress relief. Is there more to video games than just stress relief? You know, I think playfulness. So my research was in adult playfulness and even just saying just stress relief, I think minimizes the importance of stress relief. You know, I think that having ways to relax, to center yourself, to get yourself recharged is so important. You know, like when I work with people, sometimes just stopping four times a day to breathe for 10 seconds can affect how your whole day feels. So I think stress relief is really, really important. I think that gaming in general does a lot for people. So most of the studies have to do with kids. So like kids who engage in imaginative play, there's been some research to show that they clean up better. They follow the rules more easily. There's certain cognitive functions that you can get better at. So I think that gaming has a, like, it just affects so many aspects of who you are, right? I can keep going. I don't know how short or long of an answer. I'd love to hear more about that because I had a friend in college, for example, when he was having a bad day, he would boot up his PlayStation 1 and play Tenchu Stealth Assassins because he felt better after pretending to be a ninja and slashing people's throats. Yes. Or... (laughs) Or, go on. Or he felt better after having a desire and being able to fulfill it and able to feel competent. The desire isn't to kill, the desire is to feel competent. And so being able to feel competent after a day where you have felt incompetent can be very restorative. 
So do video games fill a gap or a shortcoming in our lives then? I wouldn't call it a shortcoming. I think that there's a lot of suspicion about video games. And from what I can see, it's from um, people who don't particularly play very often. I think that games have always been a part of human society. I think now they can just be symbolic as opposed to physical. I don't know why we still give precedence to the physical over the symbolic, especially since art, which is sort of like the epitome or the one of the great things culture produces is also symbolic. So um, I think that gaming, I was just going on with the virtues of um, play as being a beautiful human activity, an activity that is also very human, that is very... Uh, I have so much to say about this. I almost don't even know where to start. Uh, (laughs) I'm very excited about playfulness. Well, let me ask you this. Does play need to have some sort of a creative output, like a painting? Because a lot of people sit down and watch a TV show and feel better afterward, but don't necessarily have something to show for it. Yeah. See, the way I watch TV is a little bit different than that. I consider watching TV a very engaging activity because my husband and I pause and then we talk about what just happened and we analyze and we react and we talk about our reactions. So I consider sometimes TV can be passive, but I don't think it necessarily has to be a passive activity. So I think that the thing about playfulness is that you kind of have to feel like I call it being sovereign of your universe and where you're engaging in something that feels good. I think a big part of playfulness is actually the experience of being in it. There's a concept called flow, that there's a um, writer, psychologist, researcher, um, he was Hungarian, Csikszentmihalyi, who, and don't ask me to spell that because I, after my doctoral project, I totally forgot how to spell his name, Um, (laughs) that talk about this state of flow and in sort of common appropriated terms, we call it Zen, but being in a space, being in a a way of being where you lose track of space and time. And you're just so in whatever you're doing. And what you're doing is just the right amount of challenging, right? So it's cognitively engaging. If it's too easy, it becomes boring. If it's too hard, it becomes frustrating. There's a sweet spot that game designers are always trying to hit. It symbolically fits with your identity, with what you're curious about, and you're just in it completely. And it's a place of no anxiety, and it's a place of not being sad or depressed. It's a place of no suffering, and that's very, very appealing to a lot of people. And so I think that gaming, when it's a really good game and you're really in it, gives you this sort of access to pure being that I think people are searching for and are deprived of. So I know when I am feeling fidgety and haven't gotten out of the house much, I may set aside an entire Saturday and go for a bike ride. And I don't mean just around the block. I mean like 100 miles just for fun. That's amazing. Is that a form of play? I would consider that a form of play. I probably have a very wide definition of play. Um, There's a concept called an autotelic personality where some people just seem to naturally they don't like i'm one of these people we don't really get bored and playfulness just seems to be how we relate to the world so i think that i define playfulness very broadly like 
I go to the grocery store and I'll make my husband dance with me in the aisles and I'll have fun picking out vegetables. And there's something about how I'm relating to it that is akin to what it's like to play. So I would say, broadly speaking, you are playing, you're exploring, you're moving, you're in flow, you're having fun, it's on your terms. And what sort of attention do you get from the other people at the supermarket? <laughs> because, <laughs> because my husband is um, one, an introvert, and two, <laughs> comes from a family from, the, from New England and has come from a, a white American culture, I try to only dance with him in aisles that are empty. Um, <laughs> to make, That's his, very generous to of make you. his life a little bit easier. <laughs> I think in the past, before I sort of was more attuned to it, you know, people like seeing other people happy. They're kind of surprised by it. You know, I'm, I'm notorious for hating the question, how are you? Because I don't always want to think about how I'm doing. I don't want to say I'm fine when I'm not and participate in my own oppression. I don't want to like give a multifaceted answer. But on times when I'm feeling like mostly happy, I'll say happy. And people are like, really? Why? And they're just so struck by the energy shift. So I am a proponent of having intense emotions in public. I'll cry in public if I need to, because I think that, I don't know, it, it makes it less sterile and more connected and more vibrant. And complete strangers in New England are people you want to connect with? <laughs> I guess that... <laughs> I think you are thinking through my plan with a little bit more practical edge than <laughs> I am. <laughs> well, I myself am a New Englander from a very white American background, so <laughs> you can see that lens coming forward. Yeah, I think people just think, oh, she's a weirdo, and either they smile and like feel energized or just sort of like tune me out and ignore me. <laughs> I don't see how anybody could ignore you, Ari, <laughs> even if they wanted to. <laughs> So I read in your profile on Psychology Today that you use playfulness in your therapy sessions. How does that manifest itself? Okay, so there are many ways. So one is just by having literal toys in the office, you know, things that are tactile, like Rubik's Cubes and um, putty and dough and magnets and little building magnets. And um, and I should say that I'm trained to do play therapy with children, which is a short version is that you have a giant sandbox and you have them make a world and they play with figurines and they retell the story and retell the story, or you're actually like in a playroom with them and they act out themes and you just follow them and give, help them give words to what they're experiencing. And so that informs what I do with adults. And I don't do sand tree therapy with adults, but um, they're just like tactile things in my office that people can engage with. I also have like a giant bag of D20s in my office, um, which gamers really love, which can be as simple as what should, what do you want to talk about today? Well, here are six things. All right, let's roll the dice and whatever number shows up is the number we'll start with. Wow. Um, you know, or stick your hand in the dice or throw the dice because you've had a hard day and you can't express any anger. So get it out physically. To um, I make people dance in my office. I say make, they all consent, um, you know, to get movement out. And then there's also encouraging people to play, like encouraging people to like buy a set of bananagrams and even play by themselves if they don't have someone to play with. Or 
Another way that I incorporate gaming is when I have gamers is I ask about the games that they play and what draws them to it because it lets me know what it gives me a sense of how they view themselves in the world, how they would like to view themselves in the world, what fascinates them. And also there's a lot of wonderful metaphors, like the concept of a boss battle is really helpful when someone's going through major depression, you know, and you're talking about how they're in a dungeon and how, you know, they did, they finished a dungeon last month where they learned this skill and then they leveled up. And now that they leveled up, they have these capacities, but they can tell that there's still more things to do. And, you know, and so using gaming metaphors, I think is very powerful. And one of my other favorite metaphors to use is the concept of a character point spreadsheet. People often come in and they are perfectionists and they want to be good at everything. And I'm like, you know, life is kind of like, if you're doing a, a, a point spread or a skill sheet, you have so many points and you get to decide how they're distributed, but you're not going to max out every single skill. I, I can very much relate to these metaphors, but I imagine not everybody who comes into your office has a PlayStation 4 or plays Dungeons and Dragons. So h- how do you work with clients who may not come from a gamified background? Well, the first thing is to tie it to what I like to call cultivating joy. I mean, I will say, especially in New England, I think that that's a challenge for people to learn how do you cultivate joy? And first is getting people aware of how much time they spend focusing on ruminative cycles. So like, they're not actually, they're, they're, they're thinking in circles. They're not actually feeling how upset they are. They're starting to feel it and they get freaked out and they try to think about it in circles. And how people are focused on motion and doing things and being on the move. And getting them to sort of stop and carve out little moments throughout the day for wonder, for joy, for silliness, you know? So like for some people, it's just phys- getting them to do a physical movement, like, you know, or making up music videos or, you know, for my more creative people, I'll have them do like singing or things like that at home, like, right? Like grab a water bottle and pretend it's a mic. For other people, I think Structured play is a little bit easier, especially for perfectionists who are not as in touch with their emotions. Structured play. So trying to recommend games, you know, especially if they want to connect with their children, things like Ticket to Ride or Carcassonne or Settlers are generally sort of gateway games. They're, you can buy them at like Target now and real gamers like to play them and people who are new to gaming, um, play them. I at some point would like to have a gaming library to lend to people just to like get people to just start even thinking about how can you be a little bit more playful today and to notice how does that affect your mood? How does that affect your productivity? How does it affect the things that you're telling me you value and care about? Because the fear is that if they play that it's going to detract, but in actuality, it, it tends to make people just feel happier and more energized and it's easier to live everything else and to do everything else in your life. So you're not necessarily talking about people you know, setting aside a weekend day to do something or picking up a new hobby. You're talking about little moments throughout the day when they can spark that joy. Exactly. For people who are better at it, I will encourage them to take big chunks of time. People will often come in and report how much TV they watched or how much, how many hours they played. And they say it with so much shame. Um, and I point out the shame and say, okay, you're feeling ashamed because society is telling you you're not supposed to be doing this, but 
I don't understand why being productive is better than not being productive. Like that's a very, you know, deep, I'm going to say capitalistic value that doesn't quite make sense to me, like instinctively, because existing on its own is kind of amazing. So, you know, so I try to encourage them to notice the shame and address it and maybe put it aside. And then I talk about something that people, which I talk to them about maintainability. So if you're going to play a video game, I believe that everybody has a sweet spot of how many hours in a row they can do an activity like watching TV or gaming or whether it's video gaming or board gaming. And after that hour, after that time, it starts to become exhausting. They start to feel listless and then they don't feel so good about their day. But if they had just stopped an hour earlier, they would have felt amazing. So instead of shaming, why am I wanting to spend all my time doing this? Asking yourself a different question. At what point should I stop? Do I need to like play for two hours and then take a 10 minute break and move and eat and then go back? Or is, you know, three hours good and then I need to talk to friends. And so instead of looking at it from a good, bad, looking at it as how does this fit? How does this work for me? And to, and to be okay with everybody has their own baseline, you know, of what makes them happy. Like I can be sedentary for much longer than a lot of people, which has its downsides in other areas of life. But in terms of like happiness, it gives me a lot more flexibility, you know? So I like to encourage people to tailor their actual needs to what they're doing. That's really interesting to ask, to get people to ask themselves whether or not it's working for them. Because for example, I had somebody come to me last summer and say that they had spent 50 hours playing Fallout Shelter. And 50 hours compared to some games is not a lot. But when they said this to me, they sounded unhappy, not just ashamed, but unhappy. And I asked them, well, are you enjoying it? And they said, no, I'm not. Yeah. But they just, they couldn't stop playing the game. I I don't know what was going on with them. Yeah. So I think that, okay, so I have a few theories. I think sometimes we have a wish to be productive in a healthy, good, like, I want to do something. But either we don't have the energy for it, psychically, cognitively, physically, emotionally, or we don't know how to do it. Like the path is blocked. So then gaming becomes an activity we can do where we can feel productive, right? We have missions, we have tasks, we get points, we get gold. There's a tangible way to mark progress. And then I think we play and it kind of feels compulsive because you can't stop, but you're not having fun. And my theory is in general, it's because there's actually something else you want to be doing, but you don't know how to do it. And you need to figure out, like, how can I break the other thing I want to do into smaller bites? So in that case, video games become almost like procrastination, a form of exactly. avoidance. Exactly. And procrastination and avoidance, people are finally starting to talk about it as mood modulation, right? Like, you, you feel bad, so you want to make yourself feel good. So, okay, what will make me feel good right now? Well, a game might do that. But if it's not hitting that sweet spot of like what you want to be doing, and I think all gamers know what I'm talking about when you're like in the game. I remember the first time I was playing Total War and I was using elephants to invade Rome, medieval Total War. And, um, or I guess it would have been, no, it wasn't medieval. It was, duh, it was Rome. Sorry. And, <laughs> and, you know, my husband's been a gamer since forever. And we used to have fights where he would be like, I'm coming to bed in 15 minutes. And then I'd wake up two hours later and where is he? And I'm playing Rome. And I'm like, oh, my elephants, ha ha, they're in a city, they're not supposed to be. And then I look out and the sun has risen. And I was like, it's 7.30 in the morning. What just happened to my night? 
And I was like, I am having so much fun. I'm not stopping. I'm going to continue. This is amazing, right? And then there's other times where I might be playing something where I'm just like, this isn't any fun. I wanted to stop, but I don't know what else I want to do, right? And that's a whole conversation about like, are you disconnected from yourself? Are you socially isolated? And what you really want is people. Maybe what you want isn't accessible to you. That kind of stuff is like a whole, like, you know, as a therapist, I would work with a person to really, you know, figure out like, what is it that they are, that they're like needing? I'm just giving you sort of like an overview, but I think that we get stuck in that like procrastination place because we don't really know what we'll, we don't either know what it is or we don't know how to get it. You know, it, it was interesting what you said about why is it so much better to be productive than non-productive? That's a very capitalistic view. I once met someone who is an artist and the first thing she said to me was not, what do you do? which is a very common question when you meet somebody. Her question to me was, what do you create? Love it. And and I loved that question. And it it's just stopped me in my tracks and made me think about my answer rather than giving something automatically. Oh, and I've, tr- I've tried to adapt that question myself, and but maybe I'm doing it in the wrong context because when I ask other people that same question, they get really intimidated and overwhelmed. And their response usually is, why do I have to create anything? <laughs> but if you ask them, what are you, <laughs> if you ask them about productivity, I'm sure they'd have a very long list for you of all the things they've done that week to be productive. Oh, sure. Yeah. One of my friends once had a dinner party and she called me up and she was like, it took, it was three hours in before anybody asked anybody else what job they had, you know, which was just wonderful. That's great. Yeah. You know, where it's, we're not defined by those. Yeah. I like what we create. I like asking people like, what have you been enjoying thinking about? What's a thing that you feel like sharing? What random, you know, what random thing do you want to talk about? Yeah. I think that people are really, I mean, I think that like, again, I'm going to give you a complicated answer. I think there's a lot of cultural biases. There's also a lot of psychological ones. So if you have parents who in layman terms sucked and they and you had insecure attachment, like you didn't learn to internalize safety, you weren't reflected accurately by your parents, you didn't um, feel like known by them, seen by them, and encouraged to be your own person, it's often very hard for people with attachment disorders to be able to play. Because the kind of safety you need to play involves a predictable environment, involves having the time and permission to disappear into a world and to know that when you return to the world and the you know, the one you live in, that there won't be any punishments and that the world won't be so radically different that you will be in danger emotionally or physically. So people, you know, so that's another way play comes into, you know, teaching people how to be playful often comes to like teaching them how to feel safe, teaching them how to be like present. So I think we also have intergenerational trauma patterns that make make it harder for people to not be productive. And I imagine if someone is listening, I, I you know, I just said everything quite um, nonchalantly or, you know, simply, but when people realize, whoa, that's the kind of parenting I have, it can often be incredibly emotionally intense. You know, I recommend the book Attached if people are interested in attachment theory. It's just called Attached. Um, 
Great. I'll include a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. And it's, it's especially a catch-22, what you described, because if your environment is one where it's unreliable and you don't feel safe when you come back from this fantasy world that you escape into, that's all the more reason for you to have to escape from that world in the first place. Yeah. So you end up with an anxiety cycle or a depression cycle or finding ways to play out of the house or playing, playing, playing and avoiding reality more and more and more so that your play world feels more real as a way to cope. And unfortunately, with kids and teenagers, people don't think, oh, they're acting this way. What are they protecting themselves from? What are they responding to? They think, oh, why are they addicted? Why are they being lazy? Why are they this or that? Um, as opposed to seeing the behavior in context. You know, I've, I've worked with people who I think fantasy play, like, saved them. You know, had they not retreated, they, I don't know where they would have ended up emotionally. And it's too bad that we have movies like the Tom Hanks film Mazes and Monsters, which shows only the dark side of that. You're familiar with that movie? I am not. Oh, he plays a young man in a Dungeons & Dragons group, and his brother has committed suicide and so the way Tom Hanks copes by that is by playing D&D so much that he assumes his character's identity and loses himself and he can't come out of this fantasy he's created for himself. Oh. Yeah, I don't know why we're so suspicious of fantasies. Yeah. But I think as a culture, we sell fantasies and then we guilt people for having them. I guess we sell only certain kinds of fantasies, very specific ones that deal with material and physical wealth. Well, we certainly do sell power fantasies. Just look at all the superhero movies. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, no, I'm just thinking, like, <laughs> what kind of power do people feel with the superhero movies? I think that you need psychological power to feel happy and powerful, not just physical power and not just mental clarity. And I think that people people talk about strength all the time, and it is so damaging. It drives me nuts. Or people are like, I need to be strong. And I'm like, what does strong mean? And they usually they mean repressed. I'll always, I've only seen the movie The Incredibles once, but I'll always remember that final scene where he talks about not being strong enough. And his wife thinks he means not physically strong enough to take on the bad guy. And finally, he says, no, I'm not strong enough to bear the idea of losing you. you know, and that is something that is very difficult for a stereotypical macho man to express because his fame, his power came from physical strength. And to admit some other kind of weakness was difficult. Yeah. And I would say, why do you have to be strong enough to bear the idea of losing the, you know, like, I think that somewhere along the way, some man was too scared of crying and then decided, oh, I know, I'll just call it a weakness. And, you know, I tell my, like with crying and emotions, I'll tell my patients crying is like peeing. It's a fluid that has to come out of your body, and if you don't let it, you'll explode. Wow, that's both gross and accurate. <laughs> Isn't it? And people usually <laughs> laugh, and they're like, okay, it's a different act, you know, because I think the crying is like, I call it a cousin's laughing, and um, and non-ruminative crying, crying where you feel catharsis afterwards, takes a lot of resilience, and it's actually scary. I, I don't know. I think that people have it switched when they talk about weakness and strength. It's very non-intuitive to me and it gets me very confused. So I try to get people to be clear, like, what do you actually mean? Do you want to be unaffected? Do you want to feel robust? You know, do you want to feel, because if you want to feel robust, you have to be honest about whatever it is you're actually feeling. 
you know, and there's such a cultural bias against that. You know, I tease some of my white patients and my, especially my, um, my, um, Anglo-Saxon Protestant patients that I'm like, sort of like, um, I'm challenging their culture, you know, I'm, I'm very open with them about challenging their culture if they're comfortable with that and the assumptions of their culture. And most people are craving permission to just have their own feelings and want what they want, you know, and not have to like put all this energy into being strong, which usually also means being a robot. No, that's true. I think if people are going to therapy, then they're probably going to change something. And we only have so much control over our environment and the people in it. So Mm -hmm. it has to be a certain level of discomfort with changing yourself. Exactly. Exactly. As my college roommate demonstrated, any sort of video game, even if it's about stealth assassins, can be good for your mental health. But there are some games that are specifically for that purpose or even about that topic. Are there certain video games that you recommend for people who are looking to explore or encourage their own mental health? There aren't specific games, but it goes back to what I was saying about asking yourself how it's working. Because what I have found is there are so many games out there that gamers kind of know what they like. Um, I mean, if I know someone's specific taste, sometimes I'll consult with my husband um, who's up on on the latest games and and come up with ideas. But And if people are new to it, it's a little bit hard for me to say you will like this game. It's more of go explore and then pay attention to what does the game make you feel? You know, how is it affecting your mood? How is it affecting your sense of competency? Those kinds of questions. And so then it it becomes sort of a, a fluid extension of the other mental health stuff we're discussing about their life. Like what's working, what isn't, what's maintainable. You know, people will often say, oh, that's not healthy. And I'm like, eh, I'm less interested in healthy than I am in what's maintainable for you and what's in line with your values and how you want your life to be. So I think that that is more of how I would approach like specific games is sort of debrief with them after they've tried something and to see what they liked, what they didn't like, you know, sometimes I'll tell people about like the, um, the morality, um, I'm forgetting the name, the morality board, like the concept of like lawful good versus neutral good. All the alignments. Alignments. Thank you. And like people who have never heard of it are fascinated that there are some people who enjoy chaos because they secretly like chaos, but no one in their life understands it. So they've like hidden it. But yeah. So talking about, games in that aspect i i um you know i might recommend people to like i don't know for board games like um board game geek am i remembering that correctly that is the website yep yeah i've done research on games to try to buy my husband games so i've had to do my own online stuff and then in terms of like the flip side you know the question of games being addictive Is it okay if we switch to that for a sec? Yeah, because if I understand correctly, the American Psychiatric Association's publication, the DSM-5, recently defined that video gaming could be potentially addictive. Yeah, so first, I don't think they understand video. So let me be clear. Video games can be addictive. There are people who, it's addictive to the point where they're not eating, they become malnourished, they're not sleeping, and they are in a biological crisis. And that is very serious. That needs interventions, possibly inpatient interventions. I think that there is more, I think video game addiction is like any other addiction. I tend to think of addictions as inherently a problem with emotional regulation. So you don't know how to modulate your own feelings. If you're feeling upset, you don't know what to do to feel better. A lot of avoidance gets used. Your feelings end up 
being stuck where they were originally. So every time you go back to, to connecting with yourself, it's scary and you have to go back to your avoidant behavior. And so that's how I see gaming and alcohol and gambling and shopping and sex and all sorts of things that could be potentially addictive. I, I don't... I see it as just part of, okay, let's work on your emotional regulation. Let's figure out what it's doing for you in your life. I had a video game addiction as a specialty and I took it down off my profile because really what, what I prefer to do is let's use video games positively in therapy. I think people that don't play don't understand why it takes so much time, you know, but other, okay. So are you aware of like the research about isocods? I've not heard that term before. Okay. So I say it's saccade. Some people say saccade. Um, your eye jumps when it's looking in the visual field. It doesn't scroll equally across, you know, one point to another. Your eye has these muscle jumps where your eye looks at one thing and then jumps to another spot. Right. And that's a saccade. And undergrad, I used to track these on people when I did like research. We put headsets and then you could see where they were looking and it was really cool. And there's some research that shows that how we experience time is really connected to how fast our eyes are moving. That if we're having a lot of isocods, we think only 10 minutes has passed when it's really been 40. I'm making up those numbers, but you get my point, right? We've all had that experience of I'm playing. Okay. It's been 10 minutes. Whoa. Where did that hour go? And so there is some theory about that. We actually are experiencing time differently, that we're not moving our eyes that quickly in other situations, but because of the screen, we're moving our eyes so fast that affects how we experience time. So that would be one thing that I, you know, would make people alert to. And so maybe that means that you set an alarm, you know, so that you don't lose track of time. Um, beyond what you actually like want to be absorbed in. So video games are themselves are not inherently addictive is what you're saying. I, I kind of am reminded of a friend of mine who was originally diagnosed with alcoholism and it turned out that what he actually was was codependent and he was using alcohol to self-medicate essentially. It yes. sounds like some people might use video games to self-medicate. Yes, exactly. Got it. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I want to move on to a less related but no less difficult subject. And this is one that's come up in the gaming news recently, where many women came forward with detailed, corroborated revelations about being in abusive relationships with men in the gaming industry. I want to ask you a little bit about that sort of dynamic, because I know that that is on that you have some professional experience with in your counseling and your therapy. Mm -hmm. And I've also heard this just recently, how it can be difficult to identify when you yourself are in an abusive relationship because abuse can take so many forms. So what is an abusive relationship? I'm going to answer this sideways like I seem to answer all the questions. So an abusive so abusive is actually not a word that we were taught clinically, which I always find really um, interesting slash disturbing and confusing, which is why I go back to what's damaging and what is not maintainable. What ends up happening in, in abuse is I think it's the most helpful to think of it in terms of a cycle and, you know, and I'll, I'll go through different parts of the cycle in a second, but what ends up happening is that whenever you're inside the cycle, you're reacting to what's happening and you can't see the bigger picture. I'm trying to think of a good example because there's so many different ways you can get these abusive relationships. So let's say you have this like codependent enmeshed. So like 
enmeshed is when you basically you outsource your own emotions to someone else and make them responsible for what you feel. Right? A very classic abusive dynamic where the person, you know, where one person is and were these emotional abusive or physically abusive, I should ask. So the ones in the video game industry were I, I would say both. Both. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly possible to have both in one relationship. Oh, totally. Yeah. Uh, and the person who's being abusive, they don't even know they're being abusive. You know, my first year in graduate school was working in a prison with boys ages 10 to 21. And a lot of them had committed violent crimes. And they had no, I mean, their empathy while, while they were angry was non-existent. They had no awareness that they were actually hurting someone. Like I would say some, to somebody, well, what if someone did this to your mom or your sister? And they would say, I've never thought of it that way, you know? So there's a, a, a big deficit in, in, in perspective taking and the ability to perspective take, which I think allows the abusive person to often conveniently uh, continue. But let's say they outsource their feeling to their partner and their partner tries to make them feel better, but you can't ever really make someone happy if they're at their core unhappy. In an abusive, so one person, the abuser says it's your they may not even say this directly sometimes they will it's your fault i'm in a bad mood you didn't do x y and z and their incentive is to keep having complete ignorance of the other person's experience to focus on what they're entitled to and to feel justified in that entitlement and usually they have chosen a partner who tends to be more accommodating tends to be conflict avoidant and tends to on some level, believe things really are their fault. You get into this like situation where you're psychologically sort of prepped to believe this like toxic, poisonous things, like, oh, this is your fault that I'm like this and like that. And additionally, you're with somebody who is gaslighting you. They're not saying to you, I am being abusive right now. That's the thing that people really don't get about abuse and about a lot of trauma is the person who's hurting you isn't telling you, I am hurting you right now. And this is going to make you feel powerless. And this is going to make you feel crazy. And this is going to make you feel like, you know, you, it must be your fault, even though you don't know what you did. Instead, they just assert what they feel entitled to. And then you respond and, you know, as human beings, we generally are very influenced by what other people tell us reality is. There are ash experiments where you have 36 lines in a room and one line, no, sorry, 36 people, one short line, one long line. And if 36 people in front of you say the short line is the long line, you might say the same thing. We're very influenced that way. So the person who is being abused in this moment of cycle really feels like it's my fault. If I only tried another way, they might act differently. I don't want to cause conflict by challenging their story. So I'm just going to do what they say. They resume to trying to make the abuser happy, which pleases the abuser because that's really what they want is someone to take care of all their emotional, physical, sometimes sexual needs. And nothing that, nothing is actually going to make the abuser happy. Like it's never sustainable. And anyone that's been in an abusive relationship will talk about like, oh, we had like a few good days or a few good weeks. And then all of a sudden they turned again. But really it's that same person that whole time who is showing like, who isn't displeased with you at the moment. So they're being generous. But when they are displeased with you, they don't treat you like a person. I think that's the simplest way to put it. They treat you like an object, like a broken lever. Like they're pressing the button and it, the happiness is not coming out. And so they're kicking the toy. 
It's, it's not a toy. It's a person. So when you talk about somebody being primed to be taken advantage of by these abusers, is that also what makes it difficult to extract oneself from the relationship is that they may not even recognize what's yes. happening? Yes. Especially if you've had an abusive parent. If you've had an abusive parent or significant abuse as a child, there's a part of you that just, it feels normal. It doesn't even think that it's normal. This is just what it is like. And you can't get someone who's going to treat you well. That doesn't even exist in your world. But you can get someone who's maybe less horrible than your parent was to you. You know, you get into this sad world of compromises. Over time, a primed person who thinks it's normal, it starts to become familiar and predictable. And oftentimes, they'll sort of defer authority and and sort of cope more passively. And passive coping, while useful to survive the abuse also makes it harder to leave. There can also be both overt and subtle threats that make you think leaving might be worse. Yes. Or, you know, people really like the thing, like you should see my blood boil when someone says, you know, I'm the best partner you're ever going to find. Oof. Yeah. No one that says that is ever the best partner you're going to find. Unless you've been together for decades and are blissfully happy and are just like, wow, isn't it amazing that we found each other? We, you know, we wouldn't be happy this happy with someone else. Like, unless you're in that very specific situation, you know, or someone, you know, when people threaten this, I'm the best you're going to do. You can't live alone. You know, you're going to fail without me. You, you're, you're not, you're not in reality. You can't, you're not equipped to handle this you owe me like there's a bunch of stuff that anyone on the outside would be like that's bullshit like that is manipulation but when you're in it it feels like the truth you tell your friends and then your friends are like well leave him to just you know use a heteronormative male female dynamic just leave him and your friends sort of stop wanting to hear talking about you talk about how much you don't want to be like, because people want, like, they want to be, the other piece of it is when a person's stuck in this, they, they still believe the abuser can change. And so they don't want their friends to say, leave him. They want their friends to say, well, here's what you can do to make him upset, to make him less upset or cheer me up so then I can go back into the relationship. And over time, people stop confiding in their friends because their friends are tired of it from their friend's perspective. None of this is surprising. Well, of course he's being abusive. He's an abusive person. That's his tendency. And he has made no there's no real commitment to change. But for the person themselves, they haven't decided they're going to leave. They're not actually asking you how to leave. And it's very tricky. It's very painful to watch someone in a situation. It's because it's passive in some ways. It's It can be icky. It can be, you know, it's sad to watch. The person in it really believes this is my path. Like I can be happy if I can just figure out, if I can just crack it, if I can, if I can hack the abuse, I'll be fine. So what should the friends do to support somebody in that situation? <sighs> that is tricky. Um, I do have a book recommendation. Um, this is more for verbal abuse and emotional abuse. Why does he do that by Lundy Bancroft? I think that friends need to be patient witnesses and honest with what your limitations are. And you can say, it hurts me to hear you that you're suffering. And you can say the truth, which is, I don't, it's too painful for me to hear you suffering. But I also don't want you to feel isolated. Let's talk about it. You know, or to say my instinct is to tell you to leave, but I also know that it doesn't speak to your experience. And so to sort of give, give your friend your dilemma. And if they really can't engage it, then your friendship may be limited with them while they're in this situation. 
And you just want to make it clear to them that whenever they do want to change, you'll be there to support them. And if they're ever in danger, you'll be there to support them. Um, if they ever want you to help them find a therapist or go with them to their first appointment or go to a women's shelter or call a hotline, you know, that you're willing to be there for support without the presumption or the pressure that that's what they should do, that they should leave immediately. Now, if kids are involved and kids are being physically threatened and also emotionally abused, that's a total separate situation, um, which we don't have time to go into. In some states, you're a mandatory reporter and you have to report it to, to family services. You know, and so I'm not talking about situations where the person's being abusive to the children. What makes it difficult is that abusers are often seen as someone who are charming or well-respected or have authority in someone's community. And it makes it much harder to get help. And remember, the, the abuser is basically telling you you're crazy all the time. They're not doing anything wrong. So how are you going to go and convince people who think the abuser is a great person they're going to, they might very well say you're crazy also. And that fear of being crazy is so terrifying because you're so vulnerable and you're so afraid of it. Because if you lose your ability to know what's what in reality, you're incredibly vulnerable. That it also keeps people isolated. If, you know, if these women that you mentioned are dating men in the industry and they have respect or power, it is that much harder to speak up and to say, wait a minute, this is what I'm actually experiencing. And yet that is what some women have done recently. And, they, you know, our society does not make it easy for them to do that. They have paid in multiple ways for being so truthful. Yeah, we are so far away. I was hoping with the Me Too movement that maybe for the first time in human history, women can start to not, that maybe women, that we could actually have safety in, in a real way that I think for most women is they, they can't even imagine it. And I think right now there is a cost. I should also mention really quickly, I don't know if I'm allowed to um, link my own, what I've written. Did, did you come across my Medium article? I don't remember. How to talk about sexual trauma. Yes, I did read that. And I'll definitely include a link in the show notes. Because I feel like that, it, while I'm not talking about ongoing abuse, eh, I kind of am. Um, that might be relevant for some of, some of the people listening um, of how to talk how not to and how to talk about to people about sexual trauma. A lot of it also applies to like other kinds of um, abuse. Um, so if somebody suspects that they themselves are in an abusive relationship, wh where should they turn for help? Let's say you wonder if you're in an abusive relationship and technically you're not, that doesn't matter. You're still allowed to want out of a relationship if it doesn't feel good. Let's be clear about that. That I think sometimes people ask that question that you just asked, like, oh, how do I know? And the question is, well, if you're asking the question, something's going on already. And so even if the answer is no, I would say it's time to consult with a therapist or a trauma specialist. If you have medical insurance, this is much easier, depending on the state that you live in. But like websites like Psychology Today or um, Zen, Zen Care, where you can put your zip code in and read therapist profiles and see if there's someone you want to make an appointment with. RAIN, R-A-I, the um, Rape Abuse Incest Network, um, they have resources online. In New England, there are hotlines of um, the Samaritans. I can provide you all these links um, later, but um, the Samaritans can also be resources but I think if you're 
you most likely want a therapist, a professional to help you sit through and see why are you asking these questions? What's going on that your relationship has gotten to this point? What's going on that, you know, something is bad enough that you're asking the question. And to know that a good therapist is not going to tell you to leave that person right away unless you're about to be killed. So that sometimes people don't go to therapy because they're not ready to leave the person. And you can just tell the therapist, I'm not ready to leave the person. That's not, I'm not there yet. And they should honor that because you can't jump, you can't be where you're not. Well, thank you for those resources. And anything that you send to me, I'll definitely put in the show notes at polygamer.net because these are important things for people to know about and have access to. So thank you. You are welcome. I hope that this has been useful. It's sometimes hard to tell how to make it a big topic concise in a way that is useful to people. No, I think anything that we can do to help get the word out is very valuable. And I know that you yourself, you are a tireless advocate and activist, and you have some social justice to pursue. But yes. in, the, in the meantime, if uh, anybody wants to find you online, where can they do that? Um, <laughs> they can email me at ID at gmail.com, which we can link. I do not have a website yet. I've been in private practice for eight years. It has always been a goal, but I've always been too busy and too full. So I figured it's not fair to put up a site um, if I don't have enough openings. Um, but the more that I write, I'm sure I'll put one together in the next couple of years. Does that mean you're not taking on new patients at this time? I am. I have one or two slots open right now. It's sort of murky right now. I'm in the middle of scheduling a few people. It's people can always email me, and if I don't have any, then I'll let them know. And you're based out of Providence, Rhode Island. Yes, on the east side. Fantastic. I'll include all that in the show notes. Ari, thank you so much for your time. I can't wait to the next time we see each other and get to play games together. I am so excited about that. And thank you so much for having me. This is my first time getting to do anything like this. And I really enjoyed it. Well, you can add it to your website. Oh my God, you're totally right. I love it. <laughs> this has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net.